Today I, I want to speak to you about who leads our church. Who leads our church? We just sing about him. But Dr. John MacArthur is going to help us think about him. I'm going to read an extensive quote from Dr. John MacArthur about who it is that leads our church. Quote, Do you know who God gave us to be the head of the church? The one who is already head over everything. The sovereign of the entire universe. He gave as head of the church. This is the most glorious language that the Holy Spirit can use to express the love of God for His redeemed church. He desires His best for His church. The best and richest blessings, the greatest and most secure protection, transcendent eternal wisdom and knowledge and revelation. He didn't give us Gabriel. He didn't give us Michael. He didn't give us 10,000 super angels. He didn't give us apostles. He didn't give us the most gifted preachers and teachers. He didn't give us John Huss and Martin Luther and John Calvin and Jonathan Edwards and Charles Spurgeon and all the rest to be the head of the church. He gave us to be the head of the church, the one who is already the head of everything, the ruler of the universe. Close quote. Obviously, Dr. MacArthur is talking about Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Master. Jesus Christ alone is the head of his body and protector of his bride, the church. Now, I want to show you that from Scripture, because MacArthur is not the head of the church either. Christ is. And according to Colossians 1, we see that. Beginning in verse 9 down to verse 18. And then we're going to jump into Ephesians 1, so that I can explain it more fully and prepare you to understand Colossians 1 extensively next week. But let's begin in our reading this morning of God's Word in Colossians 1, 9. Pick up Paul's thought there, and we're going to end on verse 18a, the first half of verse 18. The Apostle Paul writing to the Colossians and expressing his constant prayer for them continues on to say this in verse 9. And he says, And so, from the day we heard, he's talking about heard of their faith, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled or controlled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, meaning Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether 
thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He, Jesus, is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. The one who rules the universe personally rules his church. He is our head. I want to show you that more extensively from the letter to the Ephesians, though, this morning. This is going to be our foundation, and we're going to go into Ephesians and look kind of back and forth in some different places to see how we understand and should understand how Christ expresses his headship over his church personally. We're going we're to let Scripture interpret Scripture this morning, okay, so I can properly get into Colossians 1 next week in more detail. So what I want to do is have you turn over to Ephesians 1. Just kind of turn there and hold your finger there in chapter 1 for just a few moments. And we'll get into this text a little bit and then talk about what headship actually means here, how personal and intimate it is. We need to understand what the Apostle Paul means by this. And I think that concept is brought out in Ephesians in many ways. And and I think that what we'll do first as we begin this, this sermon today is we'll begin with a bird's eye view of headship. And then I want to end by zooming in tightly in chapter 5 of Ephesians on what headship looks like personally. But I want to begin here with just understanding the concept of Christ's headship, how it's expressed. I'd say universally and impersonally, okay? And this ties back to Colossians, what we just read there. Colossians and Ephesians are sister books. They sound very similar to each other. Therefore, they should be used to interpret one another. In Ephesians 1, we begin in verse 16, and I'm going to go down to 23, and it ties you back to Colossians 1, 13 to 16. And in 1, 16 to 23 of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul points out that Jesus is, number one, the head or the ruler over all things in a broad way. This is a deistic concept of his headship. Okay, it's declaring that Christ is, is God. He is the creator. Okay, he's head over all things, which is exactly what Colossians 1 has just stated. But we begin in 1.16, and it progresses quickly into revealing this broad concept of Jesus' rulership or headship over all creation and in the church personally. He says this, verse 16 of chapter 1. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him, this is where it begins, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Notice, far above all rule. That has to do with his headship, his rulership, his lordship. Jesus sets above all rule, he says, and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. 
And that's a, that's a deistic concept of his universal headship here. But it becomes more personal in the next verse. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And every time, every time you see the concept of Jesus' headship, or at least typically when you see this in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul will illustrate that Jesus is sovereign. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. But, but in particular, he's your master. It's not just a sovereign concept without personal relationship. He ties them together. Now, go over to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, verse 4. 4 through 16 ties you back to Colossians 1, 17 and 18. And what, what Paul's doing here in 4 is he's zooming in on this concept. I think the first chapter of Ephesians was the bird's eye view, but now he zooms in and points out that Jesus is, secondly, not just the, the head or ruler over all things universally, but he is the head and sustainer of creation and, in particular, his people. He's not just holding your molecules together. He is holding you personally in a relationship with him eternally. Look what it says in 4.4. This is really interesting. He begins by saying there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one, each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. In one sense, we see in this text, Paul describing how Christ incarnated himself and came to earth and and fulfilled his role as the Messiah, and then ascended back into glory. But then he sent back something very personal, a gift to his people. He gave them instructions through his apostles and the prophets and the pastor teachers. He gave them wisdom from his word and his spirit to guide them so they could speak truth and love and grow together and not be tossed to and fro. This is a personal headship over his people. This is like a husband protecting his wife. They don't just go down and get married and he walks away. No, he comes back and he provides for her and he cares for her. 
When we talk about the headship of Christ, that's what we're talking about. It's a personal headship over his church. In these texts, we, we basically seek sort of the outworking of the expressed headship of Christ. It's a pattern that I think is in concert with Colossians and other letters that Paul wrote. I think it's a really simple pattern, and I think it's a pattern that's profound. Because every time that we see the headship of Christ explained, revealed, declared, what follows on the heels of that is the express submission of His church. Commands to obey Jesus, follow Jesus, serve Jesus. That's what we see there, even in this text in chapter 4. And in chapter 4, toward the end, he talks about putting off sin, putting on Christ-likeness. When Christ expresses His loving headship, His bride responds in loving submission because He's our Lord. Where there is no loving submission, there is no relationship. He is Lord of the church. Let me show you some places where you can see that in the New Testament. Titus 2.11. Look at this. This is how God expresses his, his love and protection for us through the gospel and how we should respond to our Savior who is God Almighty in this text. In verse 11 it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Then notice what he says, training us. See, if he's head... We follow the desire of our head. He came to save us, to train us, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God, Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He saved us. We respond in obedience, in joyful obedience. Christ, Christ works to set us free so that we can work for his glory. And I think this one here in particular works out publicly and relationally into our lives. We're doing good works in the church, but also in the world through our life. 1 Thessalonians 5, go there. See another illustration of this. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9, it says this, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through who? Through Jesus? Yes, but specifically through our Lord, our Master, our Head, our Ruler, Jesus Christ. The Lord, the Master, the Ruler of the universe who died for us so that we, whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. You see, there's a command in verse 11, but the command follows the truth of our Lord's will, His expressed headship over us, and we're thankful for it. Therefore, we want to encourage others as a result of it. His death, it tells us there, grants us life, life to share within the body. Let me show you another one, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 14. 1 Corinthians, rather, 1 Corinthians 4, sorry, I had a typo here, sorry. 1 Corinthians 4, 14. 
I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Now, when Paul came to Corinth, he came there because of God's desire, Christ's desire to bring the truth to Corinth. And he's saying, because of what God's done, you should respond likewise in imitating my actions. Because that's what God desires for us. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because when you come to Corinthians, or come to Colossians, rather, um, you see that phrase that Christ is the head of the church. And sometimes we read that and we just fly past it. We need to understand what, what it means and why it says and emphasizes that He is our head. If, if it means anything, it means He is to be our leader, our master, our director. And there are a lot of churches today who have a different head in their church. The culture sets the agenda. The world sets the agenda. But as a Christian church, we only have one head over us, and he sets the agenda. Paul constantly reminds us of that in his epistles. He reminds us that Jesus is to have first place in every area of our lives universally and personally. He is to have first place in our marriage. He is to have first place in our work. He is to have first place in our decisions. He is to have first place in what we choose to watch or listen to. He is head over our entertainment. He is head over our view of sexuality. He is the master who gives us good directions. He is a benevolent master. He's a good master. And his will and his desire should dominate his people if we're connected to his head. That's Paul's point throughout his epistles. If you have a body that's not doing what the head tells it to do, you have a dysfunctional body. Christ's desires should be our desires. Now they won't be unless we know what his desires are, and that's found in the Word. And if you know his Word, it'll dominate your thoughts. So his will will become your will. His desires will dominate your desires. Christ should drive our desires. He should drive our desire to express compassion because that's what he did. And he should change our actions because his desires conform us to his will. He has a right to do that because of who he is. He has a right to impose his will on us because he is good. And his will is always good. He has a right to do that because he is, according to Scripture, according to Colossians, he is our creator, he is our sustainer, he is our savior. Hence, he's our master. Right? There can only be one master. There can only be one head leading his church. One Lord. It's irrefutable. Philippians tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus is Lord. There's only one Lord. And God says, it's Jesus. He is the Lord of the church. He is the master of the church. Listen to Him. You realize that Philippians 2 passage comes from Isaiah 45. And it's speaking there of God. Hence, when Paul quotes that in Philippians when he says that about Jesus, he's confessing to us that Jesus is God. Only God is worthy of worship. And 
we are called to bow before him as our head. It's clear in Scripture that Jesus is Lord. But that could just be simply a statement we profess one time and we sort of forget about. But that's not what the Bible intends us to do. There's a biblical response to Jesus' lordship that needs to be expressed in our lives. It's found in Romans 12. Go there with me, Romans 12. Romans 12, verse 1. This is the biblical response to Jesus' lordship right here. Paul's going to plead with the church at Rome to get them to do what God wills. He's going to base it on what God has done for them, but he's going to show them that this is what should be really manifested in your life if you are submitted to Christ. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What is the biblical response to the Lordship of Christ? Here it is. Do not be conformed to the world. Be transformed by Christ's Word, by His will. His will is found in His Word. That's what Paul's meaning here. It's called worship in this passage. How do you declare Jesus' worthiness? How do you worship Jesus? How do you honor Him as head? Here it is. By submitting to His will and doing what He says. Now church, I'm, I'm not advocating some sort of legalistic observation of this or you know, legalistic obedience. Like, I've got to do this, I've got to do this. This should be rather the desire of the heart that is controlled, as Paul said in Colossians 1, controlled or filled with the knowledge of God's grace. I'm not advocating legalistic obedience, but I am advocating that Jesus is worthy of our obedience. I believe that true worship, according to Romans and according to the rest of the New Testament, I believe that true worship begins with reverence, revering God, honoring Christ, having a humble heart that's ready to say to our Master, Here am I, send me to make disciples. Send me to the lost to serve your people, to serve others besides myself. Send me to reveal the truth about Jesus Christ. Let me honor your command in the Great Commission. That's worship, saints. Think about this for a minute. Even the the words we use indicate that, that we should be worshiping Jesus as our Lord, we should be obeying Him as our Master, but sometimes we just throw these terms out without thinking through them properly. The very fact that we even confess that Jesus is Lord, right? It implies that He is worthy of what? Worship, obedience, submission, adoration. Listen, If we call him Lord and do not do what he says, what does that imply? Are we connected to him? Do we have his heart? Is our heart connected to his head? If if words mean anything, and and they do, especially the words of Scripture, if words mean anything, 
When we say that Jesus is Lord, we are confessing that we are willing to submit to his direction. And if we don't mean that when we say he's Lord, then we don't understand what it means to be a Christian. One simply cannot profess to be a believer in Jesus Christ and deny his lordship. You're just not saved if you don't want to submit to his will. You're not going to submit perfectly. But it's like a husband and a wife. If a wife will not submit to her husband, does not want to submit to her husband, refuses to submit to her husband, there is no union. But a loving wife will submit to a loving husband who sacrificed everything to provide for her. So it is with the church, the true church. Jesus said that himself in John 15. Turn there with me. John 15, verse 1. Jesus speaks and says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the true vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. We don't take any credit for our fruit. We don't take any credit for our obedience. Jesus is simply saying, just like in a vine, when the fruit comes forth, it's because it's connected to the vine. Apart from me, he says, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. That's someone who professes to be a Christian and will not submit to Jesus' lordship. They are sent to hell. They are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my learners, my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. In the same way, He says, that that I am obeying the Father, you should be obeying Me if you're My real disciple. That's what He says. In verse 11, He says, These things I have spoken to you that My joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. See, I'm not talking about legalistic observation here or legalistic obedience. Because Jesus says, If you're really connected to me, you're really in the vine, oh, you will have full joy when you obey me. It's a joyful obedience. It's a grace-driven thankfulness and obedience that we're expressing here, that he's talking about here. So when we read things like this, I think we need to ask ourselves questions. Are we abiding in the vine? Are we really truly following Jesus as Lord, as Master, obeying His commands? Is, is, is that even our desire? I pray that it is. And I know that for many of us here, most of us here, it is. And I also know that obedience isn't the perfection of our lives, but it is certainly the direction of our lives if we're truly in Christ. We want to be obedient. Listen, obedience is an act of worship. That's all it is. 
That's all Jesus is telling us. That's all Paul is telling us. It's an act of worship that comes from a new desire that we have. A new desire that was given to us, granted to us through the new birth. Because we have a new heart. Turn over to Hebrews 10 to see that. We have a new desire as believers because we're connected to the head. We're connected to Jesus. My, my question is, for anyone and everyone, are you examining yourself to see if you're truly in the faith? Again, not, not perfectly obeying his desires, but is there a longing? Is there union with him? Do you know his desires? Do you want to serve him? Though we fall short, we live in grace, but we want to be obedient to the one who came to save us. Because this is what he's done. He's, he's so united us that we have his heart. Look what it says in verse 12 of chapter 10. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That means you're being constantly conformed to the image of Christ, progressively. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant, this is what I want you to look at, really, folks, listen. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. Here's the evidence of the covenant. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. He has planted his law, which is equal to his desire. He has planted that in us. He has transplanted that in us, taken away the stony heart and given us a heart of flesh that now wants to serve and magnify Christ. Could it be possible for us, if we really had this heart, to ignore the commands of Jesus, to fight his headship, to live contrary to his revelation? I don't think it's possible for the believer. But we know people who claim to be Christians who do this. They claim the name of Jesus, but yet there is no desire for obedience. They want fire insurance. Oh, I believe in Jesus. I'm not going to hell. But you know what? He doesn't mind if I do this and I do that and I change my worldview here and I change my worldview there. No, I'm still going to heaven. Who says? Not Jesus. Many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, look at what we did in your name. And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. You're, you're trusting in your own autonomy. You're trusting in your own direction. Not my directions. Not my revelations. Uh, we prophesied. We healed. We did these things in your name. He says, I don't know you because you did those things for boasting. You did those things not under my direction, but under your own direction. Many people will profess Jesus with their lips and deny him with their life. And I pray that no one here will be among that group that day. My, my heart as a pastor is to, to beg with you and plead with you and teach you so that you would not ever stand before Jesus on that day and say, Lord, Lord, I went to church. I went to a Reformed church. I went to a biblical church. 
but I lived however I wanted. But I had all the right orthodoxy. I had the right theology. And Jesus looks at you and says, I don't know who you are. You wouldn't submit to me. Listen, we can profess Jesus as Lord, but it, it manifests itself in our life, whether that's true or it's false. And Christian, you need to ask yourself, what are you bowing to every single day? Is it Jesus or is it something else? Your own desires, your own views of the world and culture, your pet sins? What really dictates your actions every single day when you get up? Is it Jesus and His commands and His promises and His grace? Or is it sinfulness? Is it worldliness? Conformity to the world around us? Listen, I want to plead with you just to examine that this morning. If you have hidden sins, if you are bowing before some idol in your heart other than Christ, I pray that you will bow today in submission and repent. Cry out because God is near the brokenhearted. He will hear you. And He is worthy of our bowing and our repentance. He is our Master. He is the head of the church. He wants the best for us. And that means submission to Him. The word head that's used in Colossians and Ephesians is the word in the Greek called kephala. And that word simply refers to the present intimate rulership or guidance of a head over its body. And so we have to ask ourselves, is, is that our testimony as Christians, as a church family? Is Jesus the living head that directs and controls this living body? Are we living in Christ under His leadership or under our own autonomy? Are we bowing to His leadership and His headship corporately as a local church practically, doing what He commands us to do locally? I think if we understood more particularly what it means for Him to express His headship over us, I think we would gladly repent of our failures and joyfully submit to His mastery. I want to show you how to do that by zooming in on Ephesians 5. I want to show you here in Ephesians 5, this is really my outline, this is really the sermon. You've been getting all introduction up to this point. I want to show you how Jesus expresses his headship. And when you understand this, it changes everything. He is not some distant deity. He is not some one-time experience in your past that you professed. He is your present and abiding Master, Savior, and Friend. He is lording over you in love. He is your spiritual head. And in Ephesians 5, it explains how He expresses His headship personally and why we should submit to His headship joyfully. Just, just look with me there. Hebrews 5, and I'll begin actually read, reading in, I'll begin reading actually in um, Ephesians 5.22. 5.22 Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word 
so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Here here is how Christ expresses his headship over his body or his lordship over his bride. Let me run through these with you quickly. Number one, he personally saves her according to verses 23 and 25. This is personal rescue here. It says that Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself personally its savior. Verse 25 says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is loving lordship. He sovereignly and personally sought us and bought us with his own precious blood. Should we not want to submit to his guidance? Secondly, he expresses his lordship, his headship over his bride, his body, by personally sanctifying her in verse 24. This is, again, this is not God doing something at a distance. This is something personal and intimate. Look what it says. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, wives, you submit to your husbands because they're going to care for you. They're going to take care of you. They're going to protect, but they're also going to prepare you for life. You submit to them. And in verse 26 it says, Here's why, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Church, just just imagine the picture here. Jesus taking his bride to his side, who is foul and filthy and stained by the world, and taking his precious hands and cleansing her himself. That's what he's doing for us every single day. We are his bride. Should we not want to submit to his loving sanctification? Thirdly, he personally personally secures her. He makes her safe. He makes her protected. Look what it says in verse 27. Here's why he sanctifies her. Here's why he saved her, but here's why he sanctified her too. It says, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. How? Perfectly, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus promises through His sanctification and His salvation to personally guarantee our eternal glorification. Isn't that good news? Do we we not want to follow Him? Do we like the process of sanctification? No, because we have sin in the flesh. But look at the promise of the One who sanctifies us. I'm not going to let you go. You're my bride. I died for you. I'm cleansing you. I'm keeping you. And lastly, he is personally satisfying you. He's concerned about us personally on every level. Verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives 
as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now this is amazing. Jesus is, is the one who's being illustrated here through the husband. The husband loves his, his, his body, his life. Jesus loves the church as much as he loves himself. That's good news. Because he loves himself ultimately more than anything else in the universe. Verse 29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Jesus is so personally involved in our lives, as our Lord, as our head, that he is nourishing us. He is satisfying our greatest needs through his provisions. And his provisions come through his word. And they come to us because we're parts of his body. I think this is all glorious. We need to remember this when we talk about following the lordship of Jesus. It's not like it's an extra thing Christians do. It's the result of what Christians do after they contemplate the lordship and the mastery and the love and the labor of Jesus our Savior. And that's important for us. But I need to make some more pastoral application before I finish this morning. There are a lot of things competing for the headship of Christ in the church today. We need to be aware of that. A lot of things are vying for his position. The world in particular. There are a lot of things trying to lead us away from the headship of Christ and his directions for his people. Leading us away from expressing submission to him publicly and properly. But there's one thing that I think that has been looming on the horizon for a long time that we need to be very aware of. It's called cultural conformity. Cultural conformity wants to lead the church. The church is being tempted by the culture to conform to its desires. I think that we as Christians need to be aware that this is an obvious and present danger that we're all going to be tempted to fall prey to if we're not very careful and grounded in God's commands, God's revelation, God's grace and His Word and truth. Let me tell you why. Cultural conformity has already infected the visible body of Christ in many places. People are caving in to what the culture's worldview is about everything, about sin in particular. We're no longer sinners. We're just psychologically scarred. Something our dad or mom did or didn't do when we were little caused us to do what we're doing now, so we're not to be responsible. That's cultural conformity. And Again, sadly, some, some churches are caving into this today. Let me explain that to you. Today, in many places... The cry in many churches and to many Christians is this. Embrace your culture with love, but don't engage your culture with truth in love. They're crying out for tolerance in the church, but not speaking truth in the church. And listen, if we don't speak truth in love in the church, who's going to do it in the world? Hollywood? They are setting the pattern for the church to follow? Are we going to listen to the culture or to Christ, who's our head? And listen, if if the church is silent about sin, we can no longer offer a good news message to sinners. 
If we are silent about sin, we are not following Christ's commands to go and make disciples. Today, no one wants to hear that fornication is sin. It's acceptable behavior. It's encouraged behavior. No one wants to call lying evil. And no one wants to call homosexuality perverse. No one wants to cry out for repentance and submission to God's design. But Jesus demands that we speak the truth in love compassionately. This is where this headship kind of meets the, the rubber meets the road here. It's one thing for us to say that we believe Jesus is Lord and for us to be silent in the world when people are dying and being destroyed by sin every day. Cultural conformity has affected all of us in the church. We hear it throughout every denomination, every strain of Christianity. The cry is less doctrine and more emphasis on felt needs rather than spiritual needs. We want shorter messages. We want more fun rather than hearing the Word day in and day out, over and over. But Jesus, as our head, demands, as our Master, demands that we worship Him in truth and in spirit. We do so with confidence that He will feed hungry souls through that and not entertainment. Today, the cry in the world is for more innovative pastors. We want creative messages rather than theologically informed preachers of God's Word. Listen, church, we we don't need innovators. We need expositors. We need expositors who will stand before the people of God and say, Thus saith the Lord. And the church will respond in like manner and go into the world and say, here is the good news that God has revealed in His Word. Jesus demands that we do that. He demands that we nourish His body biblically. As I said, all these things are vying for the headship of Christ over His church. We need to be aware of that. There can only be one head of the church, and that is Jesus. We don't have to compromise with the culture. Now listen, we want to penetrate the culture. We'll never do that by becoming like the culture, though. We want to penetrate it, and if we follow Jesus' commands, we will certainly stand out from the culture. Then we will penetrate it. Understand this, even the smallest candle will light up the darkness. It'll stand out. And we are called to be the light of the world that leads them to Christ according to His Word. We're to be different. And as our culture grows darker, we're going to grow brighter. And when we grow brighter and they see our convictions and they see our truth being lived out, they're going to hate us. And this is just the truth. The more you're conformed to Christ, the more you're going to suffer as a Christian. According to 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer. But, Here's where the good news about the headship of Christ comes back into play in the church. When we're suffering, our head is with us. We can trust that His leadership will be with us in the midst of our difficult battles. He is out front, in the front of the battle, fighting the culture, leading them to the truth. 
through his church. He hasn't forsaken us. It's going to be extremely difficult for us, though, at times. And listen, as Americans, I'm going to tell you this right now. As Americans, if you're going to remain a Christian witness, you better expect persecution. And I'm not talking about 20 years from now. I'm talking about in a year from now. It's coming, and it's already approached the gate. But here's the good news. When, when trials come that try to lead us in the wrong direction or drag us away, we can come back to the text there in Ephesians and say, wait a minute, Jesus says He's going to nourish us and secure us, and He's going to keep us to the end. He is with us. When we're tempted to follow the world, He's there saying, no, follow my word. His headship is so essential for our progress. We need His guidance. We need His directions. We need to remember that He is personally with us in the midst of our difficulties. Let me give you a couple of quick illustrations as I end of how He has promised to be with His people as they submit to His directions. Revelation 3. Here's something I want you to be aware of in Revelation when you look at the pictures of the churches there. There's only one church that's not rebuked, and it's the one that we're about to read about. But it didn't look like this little church was the most powerful among all the churches in, in its time. Well, outward appearances are what matters in the kingdom of God. This is a supernatural battle that we're in. It's a supernatural promise and a supernatural Christ that we have with us as we follow his truth and we stand firm in the midst of the darkness. Look what it says in Revelation 3. 7 to 12. This is an example of how Christ will personally glorify himself through his church if we are, are obedient to him. Look what it says in 3 7. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. He's excited here, folks. Jesus is happy here, all right? Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And they will learn that I have loved you. Oh, that's some good truth. Listen, when we feel like we're the only ones standing up for Christ, and we're being persecuted, we're being accused, we're being mocked, understand that our enemies will bow before our King, and they will see that we were loved by Him. Verse 10, he says, they're going to know that I have loved you. Verse 10 says, because you have, here's why, here's why I have loved you, because you have kept my word about patient endurance And it says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. 
dwell on that for just a minute. Jesus expresses his headship over this church personally here. It's intimate. It's compassionate. It's powerful. Think about this. He tells them who were faithful to his word to to not conform to the world. He tells them, I have loved you because you kept my word. And then he goes on to say, I'm coming. Don't worry. It's bad. I'm coming though. I'm coming soon. And then he says, you're so dear to me. I will write your name. I will give you the name of my God, basically. He says, I will write on him the name of my God. And then he says, I'll write my own name on you. Now listen, there's a, there's a lot of people I like to please in this world. My wife, my church. But none of you compare to Jesus. If I hear anyone say, well done, I want it to come from Him. I look forward to having His name written on me. Jesus is promising to bless that church. And He says they're not powerful. They're not much in the world's eyes. But they're wielding my sword. They're faithfully routing my enemies through a supernatural observance of my commands. And he's implying to them that he is present with them in the midst of that battle. And that promise belongs to us too as a church. Again, Jesus is not a Lord in the distance. He is present. He is close to us. He is with us in the battle. He is creating fresh courage and faith as we walk in His Word, as we're washed in the Word. Understand what the Spirit of God is saying to us through His Word today. It's telling us that Jesus is the head of the body, this body, sovereign grace. He is present with us. He is blessing us as we stand up for Him culturally. And He will be with us personally. And He will even promise to keep us in the midst of all these things and grant us His grace and rewards in the end. One last text and I'll end. Psalm 46. I think in this passage as we end, the Lord Jesus is personally fulfilling what this psalmist has promised us. Here's what He's telling you, Sovereign Grace. You, this little flock, listen. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The culture church rages. The kingdoms totter. He utters His voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord. How He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. 
I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of angels is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Church, this is how Jesus promises to express His headship over us. He is with us. And He will win the battle. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we bow before Your great authority. We bow joyfully. We want to learn from Your Word how to live in this world in a way that would make much of You, that we would stand out from our culture but have compassion on our culture. And the greatest act of compassion is to speak truth to them in love. Those who are perishing, they need Christ. They need to know there's hope and there's forgiveness found through His sacrifice, through His life, through His righteousness, through His resurrection, and through His promised presence in the midst of difficulties. Lord, we know people that are hurting all around us and people who even profess to to be believers yet have not submitted to Jesus and they wonder why the world is crashing and they feel hopeless. Lord, let, let us be able to tell them our hope is in Christ. As we submit to His directions, we find that he has, a, he has a divine and sovereign plan that may include suffering, but in the end it leads to glory. It leads to the glory of His name. And in the meantime, it brings us comfort knowing that He is with us in the midst of the suffering. Father, I pray that You would conform us to Christ as we study Your Word, as we consider the the universal nature of Jesus' headship and the personal nature of His headship and how that should look as it's expressed in our submission to Him here on earth. Lord, I I pray that you You are conforming us now, even now, today, through this sermon, and that we would joyfully accept Your discipline and pursue Your truth in grace. In Jesus' name, amen.